Hello everyone and welcome to episode 58 of the Hi Hat Film Podcast, your purveyors of authentic frontier film gibberish. I'm Michael Clancy and it's a thrill to be back with you as we reopen the doors to the Hi Hat Hall of Fame and examine whether or not a film is worthy for entry. This time round, we're looking at the 2004 director's cut to Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko. I'm very happy to be talking about this film, not because I hold it in any particular high regard, but more because after a couple of watches, <laughs> I can still barely wrap my head around all the dark teenage angst and twisted time-travelling intricacies. I'm very fortunate then that making the case for the film is a very smart cookie indeed, uh, Mr. Eric Saris. You might remember Eric from our Sideways Hall of Fame episode we did a couple of years back. It was a controversial inclusion, but Eric was in that episode, as he is in this one, very passionate about the films that he loves, and, and he suggests films that I may not have particularly strong feelings about, but ones that you can certainly have fascinating conversations about. And that's definitely what we have here. So I'm going to stop my ramblings, and I'm going to play you the trailer for Donnie Darko, and then we'll get into the discussion. As always, there will be spoilers for the film from here on out, so don't say I didn't warn you. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons, now in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry. You got away with it. I just gonna stop. You should already know that. And so it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show after. It's almost been about a year and a half. I think it was November 2014, uh, and a, a wet and dreary night at the Hi-Hat headquarters. We sat down and we, we talked about the, the the farcical comedy Sideways, and I'm pleased to welcome him back now. He's he's looking to, to join a very exclusive club. Being uh, submitted to the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame is not enough. He wants to be a, a two-time submitter, and we only have a very select number of people to do that but uh, back again to the show please to welcome back Eric Saris how are you doing Eric? Good, good, doing really well Michael thanks so much for having me back on It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure you were, you've submitted one of the most controversial films into the Hall of Fame I have to say it, it did raise some discussions there were so there were people, everybody enjoyed, the episode was very well received, certainly, but there was more than a few of our regular listeners that felt that Sideways uh, was not worthy of a spot in the Hall of Fame, but, uh, you know, I, I think you did a very good account of yourself, and I think it was, uh, I think it, it sits there and it, 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 it stacks up alongside any of them. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it was fun defending that movie, um, you know, especially with it not having the most grounded plot, and... Yeah, I can see how it'd be polarizing, and I think today may be even more polarizing <laughs> trying to wind through this film, so we'll see how that goes. I think you might be right there, Eric. I mean, I don't mind telling you right off the bat, you've got your work cut out for you. You have, you know, so <laughs> I try and treat all films equally when they come in. Everyone starts at, the, at that, um, basically at that zero mark, and then they can either go up or down. But you're you're already in the negative columns with this film. I think you've got a, a bit of work to do. But uh, I, I think if anyone can do it, it's you. Hey, well, thank you. I'll do my best, and, you know, we'll, we'll find out at the end. You know, give me your honest answer. Absolutely, and, uh, wow. The integrity of the whole Hall of Fame is at stake, so it will be nothing but honest and, and fair. But we'll get to that all in due time. Uh, we have had a couple of change-ups and shake-ups the, to the format of the show since you were last on, Eric. Gone are the quick-fire questions, which you answered so well last time. Instead, uh, my guests 
are, are put through the ringer with our hi-hat film questionnaire, which is 10 questions based on your own film preferences, just to kind of suss out whether you are, in fact, uh, worthy enough to submit a film. I mean, the fact that you've already submitted one might be uh, telling enough, but for the, the purposes of filling the hour, we'll, we'll, we'll go through these 10 questions, if that's all right with you. Yeah, that's totally fine with me. Sounds good. All right, so the first one I like to ask, what is the first film that you remember seeing in the movie theater? Okay, so the first film I remember seeing in the movie theater was Home Alone. I was around four years old, I think, when that came out, and I just remember laughing so hard at the paint cans hitting them on the stairs. That was just something that's burned into my memory. I can still picture the movie theater, so Home Alone. It's so often that that film comes up as the first film that the guests have seen, and I know my guests are generally of around about the same age as I am. And it's certainly one of the first films I saw as well. And I, yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm sure it's not everybody's first absolute first film they saw, but it seems to be the one that people yeah. seem to remember. Yeah, definitely. I know that my mom said the first film I watched was Charlotte's Web, but I always called it Charlie's Pig, which, you know, might make more sense to a kid as a title. <laughs> yeah. Damn Charlotte <laughs> swooping in there and stealing all the credit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, well, that's a good one anyway. What about your top five favorite directors? Okay, um, going in order from uh, most favorite to fifth favorite, Wes Anderson, Stanley Kubrick, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, and John Hughes. That's a fine list, that. Good, I'm glad to get your approval. Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, those are all standouts. What, what's, your, what's your Kubrick standout? What, what do you love about Kubrick? My favorite is just the way he... The way he paces everything, as you know, a lot of movies are pretty long, but there's just like the way he takes his time with letting events unfold. My absolute favorite of this movie is <clears throat> 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, which is also you know, my favorite sci-fi movie of all time. And just the visuals of that alone, he just, I don't know, he just captures something that I've never really seen another director do with that ability to pace at a, at a slow speed and really capture the art of, you know, watching a very specific story usually through a narrow lens he's a i mean 2001 has been on my list to re-watch for many many years and i'm gonna find the time at some point to sit down and watch it again because i don't think it quite i think i saw it a little bit too young and it didn't quite have the it, I, I couldn't quite fully appreciate it but i'm sure if i sit down again it's gonna blow my mind i'm looking forward to that yeah i'd say that's probably his, his heaviest one and but something else to admiral about Kubrick is i just like that he kind of made one film in every genre you know he got um, Full Metal Jacket, the horror movie, you got 2001, the sci-fi, you got Lolita, the romantic movie, in a weird way. You know, you got the comedy with uh, Doctor Strangelove. It's just nice that he dabbled in all the different um, genres. Yeah, Paths of Glory is... Have you seen Paths of Glory? No, I don't. I haven't seen it. That's, I mean, that is a remarkable one for me. That's one of my favorite war films of all time, and it's just... God, I'm just watching that, you know, it's back from about nine, late 1950s, so it's going back quite a bit. And it's just God, he was ahead yeah. of he was ahead of the curve. The visuals that he's doing in there and this the story that he's telling in that film is just something else. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, I recommend it. What what about what about the actresses? Uh, top five actresses for you, Eric. Top five actresses again, uh, from number one to number five. I would go Meryl Streep, Amy Poehler, Jennifer Lawrence. Sandra Bullock and Kristen Wiig. Amy Poehler's an interesting addition to the list. She's not so much known for her film career. I mean, are there particular films of her that really stand out to you? No, it's it's really her television career. Um, and I think I'm in general, I'm just drawn to television a little more than film. I mean, I love them both, but there's just something that I like. You know, spending multiple years with characters and just you know her persona and Parks and Rec and. Even her little, like, was it four or five episodes run on Arrested Development with Will Arnett? Just, <laughs> yeah, she has this charisma and the same level as Steve Carell in that, in that comedy run, I would say, that I find irresistible. And I think she's incredibly talented in the work that she's done, you know, supporting young stars like the recent success of Bronx City, you know, and her UCB shows and everything like that. I think she's just, you know, really, really important person. In the medium. Absolutely, and uh, very a, a positive role model as well. I would say out there, so always uh, interested in what she has to say. Good, a good uh, Emmy host as well. Her and Tina Fey. Did you catch her in Inside Out? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. So there, there you go. There's a film that I definitely loved her in, and everyone else in that movie. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody right across the board is so perfectly cast, all the voices in that. But she, I mean, her voice is basically Joy personified, so it's a, a shrewd yeah, bit of casting. Perfect casting. <laughs> what about the actors, Eric? Okay, so going to the actors, Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, and Tom Hanks. That's another really good list. <laughs> Can't really fault that. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis... <laughs> Is it, um, There Will Be Blood that won you over for Daniel Day-Lewis, or are you going back a bit further, you know, Last of the Mohicans, My Beautiful Laundrette, My Left Foot? Yeah, so, funny thing is, I don't know if this is going to be, be a strike against me, um, so There Will Be Blood won me over because it's actually the only Daniel Day-Lewis movie I've seen completely through. Um, I've seen clips of, of other movies with him, and I've seen... Uh, just, you know, videos of him on YouTube doing stuff, but the only movie I've watched was There Will Be Blood, and when I finished Holy Crap, I was like, yep, this is the best actor I've ever seen. <laughs> the fact that he can do that, having only seen one of his films all the way through, uh, is very telling. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, and I mean, it's a shame on me for not seeing more, because I saw that movie for the first time two years ago, and I haven't gone out of my way to get, you know, I know, like, Last of the Week is really accessible, but, um, yeah, that's just... I saw There Will Be Blood three times, so if that counts as three Daniel Day-Lewis movies, maybe. Well, <laughs> it is a film that... You, it's one of these films that genuinely improves with repeated viewing, and you do find something new yeah. in it every... Well, at least I find you find something new in it every time, so, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you off with that. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> All right, now, I, I seem to... I, when we did the show last time, you sent me a list of your top 20 films, and um, there was one film, that, that, Wedding Crashers was the one that stuck out on the, li on the list uh, more than anything else. Is that your favorite comedy of all time? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, this is the toughest question that you gave me, and um, I did decide with Wedding Crashers. Um, my only, it was, it was tough because I was between Wedding Crashers, Animal House, and Team America, three drastically different movies. And even the Wedding Crashers isn't like a non-stop laugh fest. I just think the overall quality of the movie and the level of the jokes and the quick fire, you know, rapport between uh, Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, you know, just, that just gets me every time. And, um, and with the, the whole plot of the, the romantic underlying lines with the, with the female characters as well, just makes it a quality film, as I mentioned before. And, you know, one of these days, I'll have to defend that one for the for the um, Hall of Fame, and we'll get another polarizing film on the list. <laughs> oh God! I, like if you ever do that, I, it's gonna be uh, yeah. We're gonna have to put some time aside for that because I don't even know how that episode is gonna work. But um, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> we got to make that happen. You mentioned uh, 2001 was your favorite sci-fi. Yep. It's one that that comes up so often. With with uh, when when I do this one, it's it seems to be our most repeated answer is two thousand and one. Uh, why? What is it for you? What is it about it for you? Well, just the the epic. I mean, it's an odyssey. Just the epic story of it to begin with. You know, spanning kind of the I guess the biggest milestones in human evolution, where you're following that monolith, where you get the the apes kind of transitioning into humanity, albeit through violence, but, uh, you know, influenced by the monolith itself, and then they find the monolith on the moon, kind of like that next step, we made it to the moon, we've established a base, and then going to Jupiter, it's just kind of like leading this odyssey of exploring more and more, further and further away from home, and, uh, you know, obviously the conflict between machine and man is fantastic in that movie, and, uh, you know, comparing it to the modern a Christopher Nolan epic Interstellar, I think there are a lot of similarities, and Kubrick really explored that dichotomy um, between machine and man, where machine was the enemy with how destroying everyone, and I like how Nolan kind of took that on the other side with um, the actual character of Dr. Man sabotaging the human's mission, so there's, there's just so many facets that you can do in a sci-fi epic, and I really think Kubrick encapsulated something special because he really brought us at the end of that movie, Things the Unknown, and, you know, through the visual representation of that and just the kind of uneasiness, but just pure awe of the, of the sights and the feelings of it, it's just, it's just an incredibly special movie. 
All right, sold. It's in the Hall of Fame. Oh, wait, no, that's not what we're here for. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's, ugh, yeah, you just made me want to sit down and watch it. So, um, can we can we pause it for two and a half hours? We'll meet back here and I'll... Yeah, I'll, yeah sure. Hey, I, I'll watch it too, you know. I, I, uh, we can do that and reconvene. <laughs> All right, I'm hitting the pause button. Oh, wow, that was really good. That was awesome. Loved it. All right. Uh, where were we? Let's see. Favorite animated feature, I think, is the next one on our list. Yep, and that I'm going to have to go with Toy Story, the Pixar classic. The first one? Yes, the first one. Um, I mean, if I can pick the whole trilogy, of course, but if I have to only pick one of those, the first one. I mean, that's we talk about Home Alone as films that sort of stick in your mind from a young age, and I, I still very vividly remember the trip to the cinema, the Dominion Cinema in Edinburgh back in 1995, you know, 21 years ago, yeah. watching that film and the, and the mark that it left, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get any arguments from me on that one. Yeah, <laughs> what about uh What about the music when it comes to your favorite soundtrack, your favorite score? What what stands out for you? Yeah, um, so as a, as a musician and specifically a trombonist, I'm drawn really to the big uh, Hollywood orchestral scores. So from my favorite to number five, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, Sideways, Gladiator, Glory, and the Lady Killers. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, I'm kind of eclectic list again. Yeah, you're all over the place there. I mean, Lady Killers, I, I, again, another one of these ones I haven't seen, so I'm not familiar with the score, but it'll be playing in the background of this clip, uh, Eric, once the editing goes, and uh, I'm, sure okay, I'll, I'm sure I'll really that's enjoy good. it. Well, <laughs> yeah, if you go, that soundtrack, um, it's a great Coen Brothers film, and I love how their movies incorporate a lot of original compositions as well as using great um, popular music selections. The Lady Killers, it's set in the South, so you get all this gospel music, but it's also, um, again, it has this big hip-hop influence, and they do a lot of mixing of uh, the two genres, where like kind of, um, like there's this one song that Nappy Roots, The Trouble of This World, that they um, do a cover of with with the gospel band and then they also do a cover of it later in the film with the renaissance um, instrument music band so like all these instruments in the 1500s doing this hip hop tune cover and they layer all three of them on top of each other it's just like this thing that blows my mind so they had to go to this Well, foolishly, I assumed you were talking about the Ealing comedy, uh, the the British original. I have actually seen the Coen Brothers one, being the massive Coen Brothers fan that I am, and it is a fantastic soundtrack. I absolutely love it. I don't know how you feel about the film. I often think that, you know, certainly not one of the Coen Brothers all-time classics, but I think it was maybe treated a bit harshly when it was released. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, when I first saw it, I think I was, I was expecting to see more of a comedy, and so I, I wanted, like, walked away being like, eh, it was okay. Then I saw it again a couple years later and had really started getting into Tom Hanks, and his role in that movie is just incredible. The, the, the plot line is good, the jokes are really dark, but they're really funny if you, you know, have listened to it closely, and... Yeah, that, I think that movie is definitely underrated. Kind of one of those hidden gems. And if you're a Coen Brothers fan, haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, me as well. Me as well. I think it got a bit of a bad rap. Well, moving on from one that maybe got a bad rap to one that you're going to give a bad rap, what is what is one film you wish was never made? Yeah, this is tough because um, I try to give everyone, like a, like, a, well, you know, at least they put themselves out there. So I don't really have too many movies I'm like, ugh, that I hate. But I gotta go with Transformers just because I think it's a shallow movie, it's a cash grab, and 
damn it, Michael Bay, you just completely overhauled the way studios look at movies, and now if they're not guaranteed to bring in $200 million in Chinese money, then we can't, you know, get, get a, a quirky film out there with a the big studio. It's all going to be like Transformers or Marvel Avengers. Yeah. Mm. So that that's why I had to kind of go with that, just because of the fallout from it. Ironically, the first Transformers is probably the best one of the series, but I, I agree with you. It, it sets a it set an ugly precedent, and it got the ball rolling on a very uh, uninspiring franchise of films, which is still continuing yeah. to this day. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. And I would agree. Like the first one wasn't bad, but but it was it was the source. It was patient zero for this epidemic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a that's a. <laughs> <laughs> a very appropriate way to look at it. <laughs> All right, well, let's, that brings us full circle then from the first film you ever saw. What was the last thing you saw in the movie theaters? last thing I saw in the movie theaters was The Revenant. Oh, wow, so uh, a little while ago. Yeah, a little while ago. I, I try and save my money for the theaters for the big movies, and since those all come out in December, I don't usually go to the cinema much the first half of the year. Yeah, fair enough. What What did you make of The Revenant? Yeah, I did see it, and you know, thank goodness I saw it in the movie theater because, I mean, as you say, the cinematography is something else. You know, absolutely stunning. I thought it. I I I thought it was a fresh look on like this this sort of these, these pioneers, these uh, these frontier crossings. Almost, you know, it's all it's always very romanticized. Almost with these these journeys out west, and uh, there's certainly not an ounce of any kind of sentimentality or anything like that. This is a a harsh, harsh land. Uh, which is established yeah. from that that opening scene, which is, you know, we're talking top fives up there, and in my top five of of opening scenes in movies, absolutely. Oh I mean, that attack, you know, yeah. seemingly all in one shot, absolutely fantastic. And yeah, you said it yourself. A lot of plaudits went well. Leonardo DiCaprio obviously got the Oscar. Tom Hardy got a lot of recognition. But for me, you know, the the young fella Will Poulter, who I believe is a young English lad, and uh, Domino Gleeson, yeah. you know, all across the board, the supporting cast really do a terrific job as well. So, yeah, really, really yeah. impressive. I don't know, I don't know if I'm in a rush to ever see it again. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, for for a cinematic experience, you know, if you're if you're only going to go to the movies a couple of times a year, that's that's a, you're certainly going to get your money's worth from a trip to see The Revenant. Yeah, that's definitely one. And um, it's funny though, I saw it on the IMAX screen, similar to my experience with Interstellar, which was the film we discussed the last time I was on here. And yeah, just seeing those those visuals oof, on that on that what is it, like eight story tall wall, just you really feel like you're there, the soaring over those landscapes. Aye. Oh, it's a it's a it's a really good pick. Yeah. Well, you've you've successfully navigated through the, those treacherous ten questions. You've had some uh, very interesting eyebrow raising, fantastic selections. Uh, we'll definitely <laughs> add that to the list of all of the guests. Um, I, actually, I do need to actually compile a list of uh, all of my guests' answers so I can actually see all the of the most popular ones that come in but uh anyway we'll we'll leave that aside for the time being eric and we'll we'll move on to the the main event we'll go on to why we're here now and we are talking 
the 2004 director's cut release of Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, a film that has an 8.1 on the IMDb website out of 10. Uh, the director's cut coming in at 2 hours 13 minutes, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Gina Malone, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, of course, Patrick Swayze, Drew Barrymore. Uh, the, uh, an interesting cast, a film that seemingly came out of nowhere in the early 2000s and really, really picked up this big cult following. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the, the film in just a minute, but I'm going to give you the unenviable task, Eric, right now of, of letting us know what what's, what is the plot of the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, and Michael and I were emailing about this, uh, but after you watched the movie, the very first question he emailed me was, what is the plot of the film? And I immediately burst out laughing when I read it. Because I was like, yeah, what is the plot of this film? Um, basically, to summarize it, the, somehow, the, or the universe that we live in, the space-time continuum, got messed up, something tore from it. And so we're watching this whole movie inside of a tangent universe, for the most part. And it follows this kind of troubled suburban teenager who is uh, plagued by, you know, visions and auditory hallucinations, um, who, right from the get-go, is saved from death by this giant walking, talking bunny rabbit who tells him that the world is going to end in uh, 28 days. And um, so... The whole plot of the film, I think, is Donnie coming to recognition and acceptance that he is a special, uh, you know, I use the word hero in this case, a special hero who is um, destined to repair the space-time continuum uh, by making sure that this tangent universe doesn't collapse in on a black hole that destroys the prime universe that, uh, you know, that the all of existence is inside. Um, due to a very, very weird fluke, and his guide throughout this whole journey is Frank, the giant bunny rabbit. And um, the other main thing I think about this film is Donnie coming to uh, understand what it means to die, what it means to make a sacrifice, and to uh, maybe heal and repair the relationships with the people um, he knows, like his family and his friends, and to take their guidance and save the world. So that's that's what I would say the plot is in a brief summary. I've never done this before, but I'm literally going to stand and give you a standing ovation because um, it's, it's a masterful effort on a film that I have now seen twice and having watched it twice, I, I, really, I really couldn't wrap my head around it, Eric. I, I you know, I tried. Um, the first time I remember watching it uh, as a, an impressionable, ooh, I must have been about 18, and, you know, wanting to be too cool for school, I think there was a, uh, maybe a, an element of The Emperor's New Clothes about it. You know, I'd heard a lot about it, and I watched it, and certainly had an appreciation for it, but, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps uh, didn't fully grasp everything that was going on. Now, to come back to it, all these years later, a little bit older, a little bit, well, I'd like to think wiser, but certainly more humble. I can put my hands up and say I, 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 still, I still don't really know what it was that I was watching in the film. I have, I have spent the afternoon doing my homework on it, basically, and reading up on, on everything to try and catch me up, and I think I've just about got my head around it. Um, you, you were very specific uh, when we were planning out this episode, that you wanted to submit the director's cut rather than the theatrical version of the film. When you saw the director's cut, was it a case that you saw the director's cut first um, when it was released on 2004 before the theatrical version? Or had you seen the film and then went and revisited the director's cut when it was released? How did that chain of events unfold for you? Yeah, so I first saw the original version on DVD, um, I think in 2002. A friend of mine from school recommended it, um, and he was one of these guys, I, I respected his opinion on cinema, but uh, as a young kid, I remember watching the original, and I thought it was going to be a horror movie, um, I don't know if it was marketed that way, I, I don't think I've ever seen the trailer, but I was under the impression that it was supposed to be a scary movie, and I remember it didn't really scare me, I mean, there are definitely three scenes in it that made me still cringe or jump um, from just, like, the pure fright of it, but... 
I didn't get it at all. So don't worry, it's like Michael and probably everyone else. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely was there the first several times uh, watching it. So saw the original last time. I knew there was something kind of sat in the back of my brain that it was one of those movies that there may be more below the surface. And I think I saw the original again a year or so later, and I got kind of hooked. Like, oh, okay, this is like a really... Um, you know, intriguing film. I want to learn more about it. So I went to the store to buy a copy, and it must have been 2004 or later at that point because uh, the director's cut was for sale. So I bought that. And after seeing the director's cut, it really brought a lot more sense to a very confusing film. And it, and it kind of eschewed that horror atmosphere and I think really got deep into that surreal sci-fi, uh, you know, distorted reality uh, film that... There's just so much to, that you can scrape away and pick out every little detail of it, and they, um, we don't need to do all that today, but I think the director's cut makes it a little bit clearer. So that's why I wanted to focus on that. Uh, I think if you have never seen this film, if you're recommending it to someone, I think the original is a great place to start. If you haven't seen it more than once and it's been some time, I think watching the original again before the director's cut is good, too, because there is something nice about the original, but if you really want to, you know, Pardon the pun. Go down the rabbit hole. You need to like, watch the director's cut. Excuse me. The, the terrible puns are my department, Eric. You just you just watch yourself there. <laughs> you can't stare, Michael. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah. So, um, why why pick the film at all? What is it about it? I mean, it's certainly it's a film that stands out. It's a film that caught people's uh, it caught your attention. It certainly caught my attention. It caught you know a large population, you know, it was a film that I, you know, had a pretty minuscule budget, a budget of about four and a half million dollars, got basically no release whatsoever, and yet managed to snowball into something that was a bit of a cult hit. What? Why do you love it? Why, why, why are you here putting a case forward for it? Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that kind of, like, delayed uh, understanding that this was kind of a popular cult classic film, because... It really did get a lot of word of mouth marketing um, in both the UK and the US. And uh, I mean, that's how I learned about it. It was just word of mouth. I hadn't heard of it. So that right away, I think, says a lot about a film, but it just generates a buzz among people, you know, whoever they are, random people. Just they're like, you need to see this. Like, you know, I don't, I don't get it. They're like, you need to see it. It's kind of one of those. And, you know, as, as you and, um, you know, longtime listeners know, 2001 is one of my favorite movies. Um, I made it. Case for Sideways, uh, my favorite TV show is Lost. I mean, these are all things that center around kind of a mystery and focus a lot on uh, relationships uh, between the characters and a really believable atmosphere. And, you know, that's something that definitely uh, draws me to this over and over again. I, I want to crack that mystery. I want to keep second-guessing myself. I want to... I like that this movie frustrates me so that I get angry at certain scenes, and then when I finally get that epiphany, it just feels so good. So that's why it stuck with me, and I think that's why it kind of has an effect on a lot of people. Whether you like it or not, I think it's totally going to affect you that way. Do you think Jake Gyllenhaal is important uh, for all of that, uh, for all of those reasons for success as well? I mean, you know, the film kind of came out of nowhere, but he kind of came out of nowhere as well, and he... You know, he, he's, uh, since this film's been released, he's been a bit hit and miss. He's kind of wrestled with being this this borderline Hollywood pretty boy, but has uh, come back and, and done some very, very interesting stuff uh, since then as well. I mean, he he really is something else in this. Yeah, and I absolutely think he is key to this movie being successful. I can't, I can't cast anyone else in that role in my head. Uh, with all the talented people that we see, I don't know who could do this except for Jake. And, and to that extent, Maddie Gyllenhaal, too, as having the real brother and sister cast together mm. made it so real to me. Even though she's not in that many scenes, she's not really that important of a character. Um, I think, for the most part, I can't really see hardly any other actors doing the um, you know, job with any of these characters. And so, and especially, yeah, to answer your question, especially Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, really sold this movie. I think um, it's the earliest movie I can I can remember with him, and I've seen a lot of his stuff, and uh, this is still, in my opinion, his best film. 
Do you honestly think Michael Dukakis will provide for this country till you're ready to squeeze one out? Yeah, I do. Hmm. When can I squeeze one out? Not until eighth grade. Excuse me. Donnie, you're such a dick. <laughs> Whoa, Elizabeth. A little hostile there. Maybe you should be the one in therapy, then mom and dad can pay someone $200 an hour to listen to all your thoughts, so we don't have to. Okay. You want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck-ass. What? <laughs> Please. Did you just call me a fuck-ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth. How exactly does one suck a fuck? <laughs> you want me to tell you? Please tell me. We will not have this at the dinner table. Stop. Getting back to the director's cut, uh, because it's important to kind of, I guess, where it's important to make that distinction. You know, the director's cut clocks in at an extra 19 minutes, 44 seconds. Uh, I, I tried to look up uh, where all the differences were because I wasn't able to spot them myself. But I think it's... Um, New text is inserted into it. It kind of breaks it down into more of a chapter sequence. They've swapped out some of their music. I think in the one of the earlier sequences, yeah. Echo and the Bunny Men are replaced by In Excess. Um, and yeah. a lot of it... And, and for some people, this is a criticism, and some people, it's a good thing, but the director's cut seems to remove a bit of the, the ambiguity about the film. Um, What's the most important part? This can't just come down to whether you prefer In Excess or Echo and the Bunny Men. I mean, do you see the <laughs> do you see the loss of uh, the, the removal of ambiguity to be a good thing in in the case of Donnie Darko? In this case, yes. Um, I went back and forth. Uh, there was actually a time where I I didn't. I thought the director's cut was a mistake. That the original was better. Um, <laughs> funny enough. Part of that reason was the opening song being changed. I was actually really, really angry they changed the opening song. <laughs> uh, but there, there was there. There's a real appeal to having an ambiguity, and I think that's why I feel it's important for people that haven't seen it or aren't as familiar after maybe one viewing to watch that first one because I, I think it's really it's really important for the audience to, to everyone to have their own interpretation of what's happening. Um, for me, for when I watched this last weekend, um, it's probably close to my 10th viewing of the film total. And I think for me, it's now become, it's, it's like, it's like one of those dense books that you kind of need to reread every paragraph as you're going through it. It's something that I really like to dive into. So for me now, you know, I am glad the ambiguity has been reduced. But on the flip side, I think it also brings up a lot of other questions. And there's still some things that I'm completely stumped on understanding, despite, you know, the inserted text in the film, um, giving a lot more information about how the whole time traveling works. I think there the added scene, he has an added scene with his dad, with this great conversation of them healing uh, their relationship. There's a few more scenes that are extended um, with him and Drew Barrymore, with him and his psychiatrist. Um, you know, there's like an added scene, I think, with his mom as well. These are just great additions that, um, you know, if nothing else, they just add to the overall quality of the movie. And I think emphasize this task that Donnie has to seek guidance from people and also help them, you know, better understand themselves when they have to continue their life in the primary universe and she leaves the tangent universe for good. And listen, far be it for me to fly the flag for films that remove ambiguity. I mean, I am very much one that is always thinks that you shouldn't dumb down to your audience, you shouldn't spoon feed them things, and that's you know that's where a, a lot of my problems with you know the bigger budget films from Hollywood stem from is the fact that they're not willing to to treat their audience with valuing their intelligence basically and expect them to be able to follow along. And it's part of the reason why I enjoy films like Christopher Nolan's efforts and stuff like that because he doesn't try and yeah. do that. But that being said. Um, for a film like Donnie Darko, I mean, for me, I kind of appreciate it. I kind of appreciate it. And it's not like it is, um, it's uh, sitting you down and completely knocking you over the head with a frying pan, giving you the whole premise. I mean, right. I watched the director's cut and I was still none the wiser. <laughs> and it wasn't... <laughs> And it wasn't until I, I sat down and, and did do a little bit more research on it and kind of read into everything that was going on. And, and yeah, I, I did have to have it kind of broken down for me bit by bit to really fully appreciate it. And that kind of, that kind of brings me back to a question that I asked time and time again, is like, 
can a film be good in retrospect? I mean, I now appreciate... I appreciate this film a lot more having sat down for an hour or two at my computer and actually read about it to kind of understand everything that was going on. But does that does that really count? I mean, if you're going to sit down and most people aren't going to go to those lengths and most people aren't going to do their homework on it. Uh, so, I mean, it's a film. Can a film be good in retrospect, I suppose? And I, I yeah, I, I still don't know what the answer is. And I, yeah, I struggle with it. I mean, I didn't really. Uh, I I think I I I don't think I even really posed a real question. You were sort of, I was sort of rambling about my own sort of film critical uh, insecurities there about whether or not you can do a film justice on. Uh, yeah, it, it's just something I come back and forth with. You know, when I'm writing film reviews, you know, do you do you write about it based on your reaction to the film or how you made it feel or how it made you feel or do you then do research on it and then you you feel better about it but uh i suppose it's well, your... I mean, why, why not why not do both you know you can you can do both right yes yes you can i think that's the the, the sort of uh, answer that i've, I've fallen upon because i guess it's kind of as a when you're reviewing films it's kind of your duty to kind of pass on those the, that research as well as your initial reactions uh, it's all this. This is almost like therapy for me. I feel like I'm Donnie Darko lying in, in the office trying to get these things off my chest. But uh, we'll get back to the film. Yeah. And so the term cult hit is one that I've used uh, a couple of times already in, in our conversation, and it, it is one of these kind of underground films that came out of nowhere. I mean, what what is it about this film that that, that created this buzz that, that got its uh, cult status? Well, I think mainly the word of mouth marketing because uh, it came out in 2001 about a month after the September 11th attack here in the U.S. and so I don't think there was a big marketing push for this kind of movie that not the most uplifting and people weren't really going out that much so with that not being on the critical mainline of like where everyone today you know knows the next big Avengers movie that's going to be out it was kind of on the radar but you had that word of mouth marketing that helped the movie recoup its entire budget over the years, uh, you know, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. again. And I think that's why it gets that cult, because it's not something that everybody knows about. And even though it has a large following, I, I believe, you know, nowadays, it's pretty well known in the, in the film community, and it did receive a lot of um, critical recognition when it was released. Uh, I think it was just kind of a product of the times that it wasn't, you know, commercially successful, but with that word of mouth, writing about how interesting or intriguing the, the story was and Jake Gyllenhaal's phenomenal performance and Richard Kelly was supposedly going to be blowing up as a big writer-director, I think that's kind of gets that cult status where not, it's not one that everyone would know about unless you're kind of a cinephile. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really one of the, the first examples I had of uh, this big word-of-mouth push. I mean, this was still... Uh, as I say, I was still quite young and didn't even really know that I was that I wanted to look into films in a more critical sense, so it sort of came out of, of nowhere and one, was one of those films that made me really stop and think about films in a different way. And uh, yeah, 
You mentioned Richard Kelly there. I mean, he was success that came with him from this. He, you know, he was a very hot commodity. Have Have you seen his follow up? Have you seen Southland Tales? No, I haven't. Um, I hadn't actually heard of it, but when I was doing some research on him, I saw that that he had done that movie and the cast looks great. Are you familiar with it? I haven't seen it. I'm only kind of familiar again that it's it's twisted again completely, and there's alternative realities and there's uh, dystopian realities and I think The Rock has a twin or Sean William Scott has a twin or it, it, it's very very bizarre from everything I've gathered from it and again came out, came out later with a, a director's cut Ben I think it's interesting too just the whole director's cut notion I mean especially for something that he wrote and directed the original and then he does and a director's cut later so when I see that it means like okay then they something got compromised in their opinion and they didn't get to tell the story that they really wanted to tell and you know for better whether it's better whether it's worse I, I think it's it's really cool that there is that option for a writer director to be like no this is really what I wanted to say without you know maybe having to give in to the demands of other people on the creative team I'm not I'm not entirely sure you know what happened in each specific case I do like the fact that we do get the option to see directors cut of I think it can go. It can work either way. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes the director's cut is sort of seen as as the missing piece of the puzzle that really bring ties everything together. And sometimes it's almost like the reason there wasn't a the reason why it was cut the way it was was to save the director from themselves. And it, and and sometimes it kind of yeah. spirals out of control. So I think it can it can go either way. Certainly, and even with this one, I mean, I've talked about. I appreciate the the removing of some of the more ambiguous parts of the film but I don't think everybody saw it that way I don't think everybody necessarily appreciates the it's almost like you're well you are trying to make it more accessible but you're trying to let more people in on the joke and it's like it's like your your favorite band that you almost don't want to hit the big time because it's something special that yeah. only you know about yeah then it's gonna be ruined that everybody else knows about it it's that like kind of our, our selfish tendency right to be in the exclusive club <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> it feels good, you know, like, oh, I, I know the real meaning behind this. You don't understand? Oh, shame on you. But then they all go out and write smug pieces on the internet for idiots like myself to go and read up on, so I can I can appreciate it, too. Yeah, exactly. And I know, I wouldn't be anywhere without all those smug, smug comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, getting... Getting on, because I said you do have your work cut out for you. You do have to kind of uh, win me over on this. you got to talk me up to it. Because it was a film that, as I watched it again, um, as much as I appreciated the the fine performances, because Jake Gyllenhaal is fantastic, as is um, as is Drew Barrymore, actually. She's really good. Uh, Jenna Malone, Maggie yeah. Gyllenhaal. Uh, Mary, Mac Mary McDonnell was someone who, uh, as uh, Rose Darko, Donnie Darko's mother, someone I really appreciated her performance second time around. And, um, and then also uh, Beth Grant as Kitty Farmer, who... Oh my god, right? <laughs> she, she, I mean she's perfect for the role. She you know, she's in everything. She's a she she pops up in sitcoms, she pops up in movies, uh, just like and whenever you need just a sort of prune-faced uh woman disapproving of something uh to go against the the uh the protagonist, she is your woman and this she really really shines in this. I I think she's terrific. But well, I think it speaks a lot when a when a smaller independent film gets that support from these you know well known actors, and it was Drew Barrymore's production company that produced this, so she must have really believed in it. And she definitely didn't have a large role in the film. No, no, she doesn't. Um, I got off topic there because I was talking about how the film was uh, alienating me, and I, I found, and then got on to how good the cast was. But um, getting back yeah. on, without distracting myself any further, it it, it did. I did find myself. Uh, becoming frustrated with the film and maybe yeah. frustrated a little bit with Richard Kelly's directorial style. You know, it is very Lynchian in a way the, of his approach. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you, when you do step back and you have that time to reflect on it, you, there, my appreciation has gone up, I suppose. Uh, so it's, it's tricky. I, I guess what I'm trying to come around to is basically sell the film to me. Why Why should it go into the Hall of Fame? What is special about it? What is significant about it? Well, 
mean, let's start with the directorial take on it. Um, I I agree. It has like that little bit of lynching feel, but it's not lynch. It, you don't go into it with that atmosphere of like, okay, this is this is going to be a surreal movie. Like when you start a Razorhead, you know you know what's up because you definitely don't know what's going on. Like it's right from the get go. Whereas this, these shots feel very familiar. I mean, just him riding the bike down and you know, your typical kind of opening movie montage. We're seeing the ordinary world presented in front of us. We're seeing the county loops and um, nothing is really striking us out of the ordinary. Uh, you know, we get the, the family dinner scene. You have all these conversations throughout the movie that feel very grounded, very real. There's nothing, you know, too fantastical going on with the camera work. And then you, but then you get these these moments where you know Donnie is hallucinating Frank, and you get these just chilling shots of um, you know one of the ones that strikes me so so terrifying. Getting chills right now, remembering in my head is when you see Frank in the living room and Donnie wakes up before he goes to flood the school, and there's just something about the way he's framed in that picture and. When you know we kind of do that dissolved transition, but Donnie walking into the school with the axe—it's such a creepy shot. And you see Frank barely in the shadow, standing you know near the water main pipe that he's going to hack. And um, one of my favorite shots too from the end of the movie at the Halloween party after uh, he and Gretchen hook Donnie and Gretchen hook up. He—it's—it's it's this moment where I really think is where the crux of it, where he realizes, yeah, I need to fix this tangent universe where everyone I know is going to die. And the whole camera just spins, and it comes in on him. And I feel like that really, for me, symbolized Donnie being the epicenter of this whole story, being the epicenter of this collapsing universe, this black hole, and it kind of all spun around, and then everything was, was righted for him, even though the camera angle went inverse. And when you get moments like that, I'm like, wow, I, don't, I can't really think of too many other directors that have you know done that or... But then, you know, it's contrast with all these very standard in-the-car shot, you know, standing on the street shot. So maybe that's why it just feels a little inconsistent, or maybe maybe you want him to take more chances. But that's, that would be my only um, critique, kind of going with you, commenting on the directorial style. Do you think this film has... Uh, gone on to influence others. I mean, do you, can you see Donnie Darko in other people's works going forward now? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, it, it, a part of me wonders. You know, the fact that it was able to to find this kind of audience makes me think if it it showed, you know, companies like Miramax and maybe even some of the bigger companies that there there was room for these cerebral films and 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 maybe it, it spawned some other filmmakers. I, I I don't know. I can't think of any specific ones, but I wonder if you did. Yeah, there aren't too many films like this, but something that comes to mind: uh, safety not guaranteed. The Plot Brothers. I mean, there's mm. kind of that that like grounded that grounded film, like you're in a familiar location. But it's got a very surreal element. Another one that deals with time travel. And um, although I gotta say, I think the thing that um, that I see a lot of parallels with is the TV show Lost. Uh, just with the the kind of um, you got like the realistic characters with their conversations, their relationships, but it's also just in this completely whacked out, distorted reality universe. And uh, another one that deals with time travel and close-ups on the eyeball. So maybe there's some connections there, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if J.J. Abrams has seen Donnie Darko, but having not thought about it, that is one that I, I have seen some similarities with in my head right now. Yeah, because I guess like Lost, it does kind of marry a lot of these bigger issues, like the time travel, but, you know, Lost and uh, Lost and Donnie Darko kind of have are, are very heavy on, you know, the spiritual side, the theological side of things, and then, yeah. you know, also, you know, the, the psychological as well, you know, there's many, I'd forgotten the, the importance of the the therapist, or the role of the, the therapist in, uh, in, in Donnie Darko, I, I hadn't re remembered her as a character so much, but she is, she is pretty, she has a pretty substantial role. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, because, um, I think the, one of the main plot points, if I didn't hit it earlier, is Donnie coming to recognizing that he's going to die and his um, understanding of what death means. I mean, that, that central question, you know, um, you know, if every living creature dies alone, sorry, that's a central statement, but he's, he's really struggling with that, and that is what the therapist is opening up, and 
Um, I find it really interesting, and I can't remember if it's in the original, but it's definitely in the director's cut. It's the last time he sees his therapist, and she tells them that he doesn't need to take his medicine, that they were just placebos the whole time. And I find that fascinating because right from the beginning, I think you're supposed to think that the medicine is responsible for his hallucinations because he's taking it right from the get-go, and then you're introduced to Frank. And so there's something with the hypnosis, with not actually treating him with medicine that I feel the therapist's character, Dr. Thurman, that she's doing something really special for Donnie by, by being the point person in this Tangent universe and his hero's tale of being that master that helps him reconcile with the fate. And it's very similar to Locke in Lost, helping Jack, you know, understand the man of science, understand the man of faith. And I, I find that to be a very central theme in a lot of movies and television I like. Is that, you know, dealing with the, the conflicts and the similarities between, you know, the grounded scientific world and the spiritual faith-based world. I suppose my my final question before we wrap up, Eric, and again, this is one that I'm going to um, just uh, hit you out of the blue with. Um, do you think the film holds up? Do you think, you know... We we kind of came through it through this word of mouth, and we were kind of found it on the, in the hype. But if if you were to show it to somebody today who had never heard of it, never heard of it, never seen it before, do you do you think it it would produce a similar reaction? Yes, I, I do. Um, because I don't think there's anything time specific uh, to an era like it's not. It doesn't rely heavily on, on pop culture. I mean, it's said in the 1980s, 88. Uh, and I love the I love the little touch of putting um, the the election in there, the eighty eight election, where it's just the same bullshit that we're dealing with today. <laughs> so you know, right there, you've got you got this timeless connection. But but in all seriousness, it's one of those films that has a subject that transcends time and space. And so I think that it's something that to show to someone today that they're gonna identify with the greater question of the mystery and also on a, a I'm not say simpler level but a more uh, common level just the plight of being a, uh, you know, a teenager or a high school student just going through the motions of everyday life and on top of that the, the mystical element of being a superhero and, and everyone everyone likes that fantasy everyone wants to feel special and there's no question um, in this film seeing that Donnie is a very special person that we can identify with as well. 28 days. Six hours. 42 minutes. 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. Right. Well, we're we're just about reaching the hour mark, Eric, and I think I think we're 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 at the crunch time where a decision needs to be made. And yeah. I you know, I I said it right up the bat. Um this there were no guarantees for this film. You know, it's become it's become the the discussion in the community that perhaps oh, you turn up on the show and you get submitted in and everybody's welcome and we've only had one film that hasn't made the cut so far. And yeah. I I really uh, I, I really meant it when I said you had your work cut out for you beforehand because I wasn't fully on board uh, with the film. The second watch for me didn't quite hold up the same way that I wanted it to. And I was ready beforehand to to, to dismiss it and not let it in uh, for, for no other reason other than, you know, I know that... I know that you wouldn't uh, take it as some personal slight, and I would never hear from you again. I know that you would, uh, you oh, would take no, it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so sure about that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but but nevertheless, I mean, look, you've you, you've you've spoken for it passionately. You've taken uh, all of my questions, whether they were pre-prepared or just thrown at you, just out of the blue, and you, you you've come back with the responses for it. Um, I think you've made. A, a, a really good uh, point about the word of mouth push and I think that is something that that's that's almost something that has become well I mean word of mouth has become now just sort of like Twitter campaigns and trendings and things like that it's not really it yeah. it, it doesn't mean today what it meant back in 2001 so I and and this is a film that genuinely you know this came out at a time when 
when people didn't really want a film like this, you know, even to the extent that it, you know, consists of unfortunate uh, things happening on planes, you know, it couldn't have come out at the worst yeah, time in that right. respect. Um, and yet it, it found that audience and it has found a spot and, you know, we are still talking about it today and it, you know, it, it launched the career of Jake Gyllenhaal, who's, you know, one of my favorite uh, actors going at the moment. Uh, and, and it, and it, and it all, apart from anything else, you know, the talking about it in terms of a director's cut and, you know, I never thought we would be at a point where I'm talking about a film where by removing some of the ambiguity, you know, you're, you're making a better film and, you know, pushing a film, uh, by adding 19 minutes, pushing it into the two hour territory as well, which is, these are all things that I would never, ever really say, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. That's going to improve your film tenfold. And yet... Here we are, and there's there's really nothing, there's really, you know, I thought I would maybe even catch out with that last question of whether it holds up today, but I I, I think you batted that away as well. So there's really, there's nothing to be done. This this podcast is not, this the Hall of Fame is not just about how I feel about the films. It is about the, the, the arguments that are made for it, the cases that are made for it, and the importance of the films. And you have argued for all of these things so well that I, that I can't, do anything but include Donnie Darko, the director's cut, into the High Hat Hall of Fame. It has gone. Yep, it's there. Number 23. Number 23 on the list. Man, thank you so much, Michael. I mean, I knew this was kind of a long shot, but I was like, you know, whatever he, whatever he says, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And, you know, if I get one other person to rethink this movie, that's great. But I'm, I'm truly honored. Thank you, Michael. You may not be so lucky when it comes to the wedding crashers, but we shall see. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I, I, I'm a big believer of the rule of three, so you know I'm going I'm to roll those dice one day. Well, I mean, I, we need to make that happen because I, I can't wait to be able to sit down and, you know, if you put the same level of, of thought and argument into it for the wedding crashers, which is a film that I would never think would 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 require that much thought but we'll, we'll see we're, we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves but nevertheless congratulations to you congratulations to richard kelly and to jake gyllenhaal and to to all the rest of them number 23 into the hall of fame donnie darko the director's cut it's been a I, sorry michael i just i just be remiss though if i didn't mention one one special thing about the movie and it's the uh the closing sequence with the people waking from the dreams with um the beautiful song mad world yeah that's just one of one of my you know, all-time favorite moments of, of cinematic history. And, you know, if you've seen the movie, everyone knows that moment. I think that song made a huge impact on the music world as well. Well, it, it topped the music charts here in the UK. It was something called the Christmas Number One, which is, is something that maybe doesn't translate so well over in America. But, like, the Christmas Number One is basically the, the most coveted... Uh, spot for a single to get basically everyone talks about being the the song that is the, at the top of the charts at christmas time and and it did it it came out of nowhere and did it and i you know wow, that's great. yeah i mean it's something else but uh no you, you're quite right we and the, the music in general is uh is really good but uh yeah. it's a very well placed very very well placed use of it yeah well, Eric, it has been a pleasure once again to be able to sit down and, and talk with you, and I'm hoping it isn't the last time that uh, that we do get to sit and chat about films because it, it, it genuinely is always an eye-opening experience for me. And um, yeah, it's it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Of course, thank you for having me, and you know, let's do this sooner than a year and a half from now. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> Rose, Kitty. Rose, I'm sure that you're aware of the horrible allegations against Jim Cunningham. I know. I saw it on TV, something about a kitty porn. Oh, please, please, don't use those words. It's obviously some kind of conspiracy to destroy an innocent man. And I have taken it upon myself to spearhead the Jim Cunningham defense campaign. Rose, I have to appear at his arraignment tomorrow morning. And as you know, the girls are scheduled to leave for Los Angeles in the morning. Now, as their coach, I was the obvious choice to chaperone them on their trip, but... But now, you can't go. Yes. Hmm. Now, believe me, of all the other mothers, I would never dream of asking you, but none of the other mothers are available to go. I don't know, Kitty. It's a bad weekend. Eddie's in New York. 
Rose, I don't know if you realize what an opportunity this is for our daughters. This has been a dream of Samantha's and, and all of ours for a long time. I made her lead dancer. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. So there you have it. Another successful submission into the Hall of Fame. Donnie Darko, the director's cut, becomes film number 23 on the list. Along with, oh, here we go, The Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, Stand By Me, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Jaws, Queen Escatsi, Total Recall, Sideways, The Raid, Alien, Cinema Paradiso, The Wages of Fear, There Will Be Blood, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Beyond the Mat, Whiplash, The Act of Killing, Pulp Fiction, and The Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Just a reminder that all the previous episodes of the Hall of Fame can be found over there on the iTunes. You can also give us a follow on Twitter at HiHatFilmPod. We also have a SoundCloud and Facebook page, which is all in good fun. That will do it for this week. Andy Lovely will be back with me next time round for our top five martial arts movies. Cannot wait to talk about that one. You get to hear me gush like a like a teenage fanboy that I am at heart for martial arts movies. Uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for listening and bye for now. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!